The 1950s were a white, straight, cisgender, able-bodied, middle-class boy in northern New Jersey. The 1950s were a pretty good decade. Roaming the still, undeveloped woods, imagining myself an Iroquois warrior. Watching Howdy Doody, the Mickey Mouse Club, and Walt Disney Presents on our zenith black-and-white TV. We knew we couldn't be rich because rich people had color TVs. Jumping over the cracks in the sidewalk on my way to school. Step on a crack, break your mother's back. Standing with my schoolmates, facing the flag, placing my hand on my heart and reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. I figured the pledge had been an American tradition forever. Hadn't George Washington said it? It sounded like something he'd say just after, I cannot tell a lie, and just before throwing a silver dollar across the Potomac. In fact, schoolchildren had recited the pledge since 1892, except for two words inserted only a few years before I memorized it as a child. In 1954, at the height of anti-communist frenzy, Congress succumbed to fierce lobbying by the Knights of Columbus, Billy Graham, and others, and added to the Pledge of Allegiance the words, under God. Champions of public piety mourn a lost golden age of American religious, religiosity. Some claim America was founded as a Christian nation, now hijacked by secular humanists. Ralph Reed calls upon Christians to take back America and make it a country once again governed by Christians, quote, unquote. The anti-gay organization Focus on the Family distributes history lessons claiming, quote, the Constitution was designed to perpetuate a Christian order, unquote. Republican presidential candidate Rick Santorum, who just resurfaced in Iowa this past week, insists that separation of church and state was not the founder's vision. After reading John F. Kennedy's 1960 speech affirming separation of church and state, Santorum recalls he almost threw up. A little history can sometimes be helpful. Americans of the Revolutionary Era were not highly religious. Historians estimate only 10 to 15 percent were church members. Many of the framers of the Constitution were deists, basing their beliefs upon nature and reason rather than upon any revealed religion, including Christianity. Some were openly skeptical of the benefits imputed to religion. James Madison believed that Quote, religious bondage shackles and debilitates the mind and unfits it for every noble enterprise. After centuries of Christianity, he demanded what have been its fruits, more or less in all places, pride and indolence in the clergy, ignorance, ignorance and servility in the laity, in both superstition, bigotry, and persecution. Benjamin Franklin doubted Jesus' divinity and admitted that, that divine revelation had, quote, no weight with me. He warned that a man compounded of law and gospel is able to cheat a whole country with his religion and then destroy them under color of law. John Adams, like his son John Quincy, was a lifelong Unitarian. He insisted the nation's founders never had interviewed, this is a quote, never had interviews with the gods or were in any degree under the inspiration of heaven. 
1812, he reflected, nothing is more dreaded than the national government meddling in religion. Then, of course, there is Thomas Jefferson, excoriated in his own day as a howling atheist. Jefferson called himself a real Christian, that is to say, a disciple of the doctrine of Jesus. Unitarian in theology, though not in church membership, he wrote in 1822, I confidently expect that the present generation will see Unitarianism become the general religion of the United States. Needless to say, his confidence was misplaced. Jefferson scoffed at the absurdities and incomprehensibilities, quote unquote, with which Christianity had encumbered, quote, the, the native simplicity and purity of Jesus' teachings. He applauded diversity in religion. Quote, millions of innocent men, women, and children since the introduction of Christianity have been burnt, tortured, fined, imprisoned, yet we have not advanced one inch towards uniformity. What has been the effect of coercion to make one half the world fools and the other half hypocrites, to support roguery and error all over the earth? I love that word roguery. I think I should use it more often. Our nation's founders established a government based not on Christianity, but on the Enlightenment. For better or worse, ours is a godless constitution. It intentionally excluded religion from the formal conduct of government. Religion may rule our hearts and minds, and many of the framers fervently hoped it would, but it does so by conscience, not by law. Certainly there were those who wished otherwise. They made their views abundantly clear at the time, and they lost the debate. It's a legitimate debate, which anyone is free to reopen, but to assert that the United States was at its founding a Christian nation is wrong. Our Constitution makes no mention whatever of God or Christianity. This was not an oversight. The Articles of Confederation, which the Constitution replaced, explicitly credited the great governor of the world. Our own Massachusetts Constitution of 1780 affirmed the duty of all men in society, publicly and at stated seasons, to worship the supreme being, the great creator and preserver of the universe. Theocracy, harsh or mild, was pretty much all the world had ever known. Fresh in the founders' minds was its tragic toll, millions of deaths in centuries of religious war in Europe. They sought a better future for us. The only mention of religion in the original United States Constitution is negative. Article 6 stipulates that, quote, no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. The Constitutional Convention approved this clause overwhelmingly with little debate, despite the fact that at that time, 11 of the 13 states imposed religious tests for public office, some demanding Christianity, others Protestant Christianity. As Madison explained in the Federalist Number 52, the door of the federal government is open to merit of every description, whether native or adoptive, whether young or old, and without regard to poverty or wealth or to any particular profession of religious faith. When the proposed constitution arrived at state conventions for ratification, the no religious test clause provoked outrage. 
Massachusetts delegate, Major Thomas Lusk, shuddered, quote, at the idea that Roman Catholics, papists, and pagans might be introduced into office and that popery and the Inquisition may be established in America. Others feared the pacifist and anti-slavery influence of Quakers. But Isaac Bacchus, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Middleborough, countered that, quote, religion is ever a matter between God and individuals. Let the history of all nations be searched, and it will appear that the imposing of religious tests had been the greatest engine of tyranny in the world. Bacchus was supported by the pseudonymous pamphleteer Elihu, who exulted in the demise of the days, quote, when nations could be kept in awe with stories of God's sitting with legislators and dictating laws. He boasted, perhaps prematurely, that politicians could no longer use religion to establish their own power on the credulity of the people. Others attacked the proposed constitution for its clamorous silence about God. William Williams of Connecticut proposed altering the preamble to read, we the people of the United States, in a firm belief of the being and perfection of the one living and true God, the creator and supreme governor of the world, in his universal providence and the authority of his laws, etc., his amendment was defeated. Ultimately, what many state conventions demanded was protection not of religion, but of individual liberty. So the first Congress passed and the states ratified a Bill of Rights, which guaranteed before anything else that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now, some argue today that the Establishment Clause bars only the endorsement of a national church, but courts and scholars have interpreted it to prohibit any religious favoritism. Confirming this interpretation, President James Madison in 1811 vetoed a bill to charter an Episcopal church in the District of Columbia, a far cry from a national church. When it passed the bill, Congress cited the church's educational and charitable work for the city's poor, but Madison rejected government sponsorship of a faith-based initiative, however worthy, as a violation of the Establishment Clause. Given this history, we should not be surprised by the Treaty of Tripoli, a document you won't find on the website of the Christian Coalition, nor even taught in most high schools. In 1796, with the Constitution's ink barely dry, the United States negotiated with Tripoli a treaty to end the attacks of the Barbary pirates. Article 11 declares that, quote, the government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion, unquote, and therefore harbors no enmity against the religion of Islam. The following year, this language was approved unanimously by the United States Senate, signed by President John Adams, and published in newspapers in New York and Philadelphia, then the nation's capital. Its forthright disclaimer of Christianity sparked no dissent whatsoever let alone outrage, because everyone knew it was true. The wall of separation the founders erected between church and state has endured, but it has been shaken in time of war. When the Reverend Timothy Dwight of Connecticut 
fulminated the, that the War of 1812 was God's punishment for our godless government, President Madison agreed to proclaim a national fast day in which those, quote, so disposed, unquote, could appeal for God's help in the war effort. Half a century later, when civil war broke out, Connecticut preacher Horace Bushnell revived the same theory of divine retribution for atheism. Deluged by letters urging recognition of the deity, Secretary of the Treasury Salmon Chase in 1864 imprinted In God We Trust on U.S. coins. It took nearly another century and the Cold War against godless communism to add the phrase under God to the Pledge of Allegiance. The Civil War also inspired Bushnell to launch a campaign to rectify the omission of God from the Constitution. Spearheading this effort was a new organization called the National Reform Association, the original NRA. They wanted the Constitution to begin, we the people of the United States, humbly acknowledging Almighty God as the source of all authority and power in civil government, the Lord Jesus Christ as the governor among the nations, and his revealed will as of supreme authority in order to constitute a Christian government. Even with sitting Supreme Court Justice William Strong, a Presbyterian elder, as their president, the National Reform Association made no headway in Congress and formally gave up the ghost in 1945. The wall between church and state has served the nation well for over two centuries. Will it survive the 21st? According to USA Today, only half of Americans agree that maintaining the wall between church and state is important. 87% believe one nation under God should remain in the Pledge of Allegiance. Another poll recently found that one-third of adults nationwide would support a constitutional amendment making Christianity the official religion of the United States. One-third. If the Supreme Court ever strikes under God from the pledge, count on ferocious demands to amend the Constitution and put God in it for the first time in its history. It's a wonderful thing when religious faith inspires people especially to public service. But faith should never in the United States become a qualification for office, formal or informal. Faith should not be flaunted as if it were a substitute for experience and good judgment, securing among the faithful political support it does not deserve. The canard that President Obama is a secret Muslim is racist, xenophobic, and offensive in so many ways that one scarcely knows where to begin. But one simple rejoinder surely is, so what, if you were a Muslim? It's ironic that those who deem government inefficient and overreaching now insist it stick its grimy fingers into matters of the soul. Our nation's founders held diverse views on religion and on politics. Some were Christians, some were not. What they shared, what they shared was a conviction that religion must not divide us. They believed that religion and government both work best when not entangled. Upon that principle, they built a republic.
May we keep it so. Amen. And blessed be.